Treehouse products are crafted to bring you the best that legal, delivered-to-your-door THC has to offer. Treehouse utilizes unique blends of carefully selected minor cannabinoids that get you lit in ways you've only ever dreamed of. From Delta-8 vape pens with innovative blends of Delta-9 and THCP, to the tastiest HHC-infused syrups and hemp flower pre-rolls on the planet, Treehouse has got you covered. Ready to delight in dank gummies and puff-powerful vapes? Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. There's only one E, not two, in treehouse.com. When you go there, get 30% off your order and a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll. You can use the coupon code GENIUS. That's G-E-N-I-U-S. This offer expires August 31st, 2023. Grab your goodies and meet us for some fun in the treehouse. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dr. David Wild. He's a former director for the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Heart Transplant Program at Stanford University Medical Center. He's the author of a book called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. So we're going to talk about his work when he was the director and why he moved on and what he's doing now and why he wrote this new book. So welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you would, give me a bit of background on you. What got you into the uh, lung transplant program and then what happened to, uh, you know, what romance of it uh, wore off. Yeah, so I got involved in transplantation very early in my career. I actually read about this in the book. When I was an intern in 1990, there was a need for one of us interns to work on the kidney transplant service, so I volunteered for that. And first night, we did a transplant, and I see that it worked beautifully, and I really caught the bug right then and there and wanted to become a lung doctor. It was about the time in the early 90s where lung transplantation was just really taking off just starting to become a thing. And I was training in Denver, Colorado when they started the program there, and I was at the right place at the right time and got involved in it early on and made a career of it and spent most of the time, as you mentioned in the intro, at Stanford directing the lung transplant program there. Why lungs instead of kidneys? You know, the first one that you did that went well. What made well, you like that? I've always been interested in the lungs. My father is actually a lung doctor, so it might have run in the family a little bit. And I really became interested in being a lung doctor, but wanted to be a transplant doctor. So I was really, you know, gratified when it became apparent that lung transplant was going to be a real, you know, growing thing in our country. And, you know, like I said, it was a matter of getting in on the ground floor and, you know, seeing the field from experimental phase all the way up until today where it's not a routine surgery by any stretch of the imagination, but it's much more refined than it was when I first started. So what was the good and the bad of working in the lung transplant area? What did you like and what troubled you? I think the best thing about it has always been, you know, how exciting it is and, and remains exciting to me to this day. I mean, you're essentially with an operation turning around a person's life in a better direction. I think the hard part, though, is when it doesn't go well. 
you know, and when either a patient dies on a waiting list, which, you know, unfortunately happens, or we do the transplant and it doesn't really work. Most of the time it works really well. And I think that that's what, you know, keeps us all coming back, you know, for more. But I think it's really difficult, you know, to talk to families and talk to patients when things don't work out. And, and that was ultimately what drove me out of the field. I, I didn't tolerate those kind of losses like I had early on in my career. So that's what got me out of the field. Were you able to figure out why a transplant didn't take preemptively or is it just too complicated to do such a thing? You know, we pretty, we usually would have a pretty good idea about what went wrong. Not not always, but usually. And I think it's, you know, it's such a complicated surgery with so many different moving parts, you know, and so many different aspects of it can go wrong. And so we could usually figure it out. But it, you know, there are times when you really don't know what happened. And I think that, you know, that's especially frustrating because patients, families, you know, want to know and we want to know so that we can prevent it happening the next time out. But we would, by and large, be able to figure out what went wrong. Could you preemptively know? I mean, were you able to give somewhat accurate odds to the family of the person or the person themselves about to undergo the surgery? Yeah, we really could. And a lot of it has to do with the patient themselves. You know, in other words, they're patients who are so sick going into the operation that we know it's going to be higher risk than patients who are less sick. And we would tell patients' families that. In fact, we would tell them that we would you know, need to take an organ or a lung for them that was not of the highest quality just because they couldn't survive the waiting time. In other words, they, they just didn't have time to wait for a perfect organ to come become available. So a lot of times we were clued into the fact that it was going to be a tougher operation, you know, than most. And we would tell patients' families that. And they, I think they so what happened? You, you just got tired of the operations that didn't work? Like what, what what percentage, if you could assign such a thing of the operations you did that other surgeries did, just didn't work? You know, I think it was a relatively small percent. I mean, somewhere between 5 and 8%, you know, didn't go well. And I think that that's a relatively small percent. But that was difficult. And then there were the patients that we had gotten to know that we had transplanted, say, several years earlier that, you know, sometimes would pass away as well. And that was tough. And I wrote, I write in my book about the emotional roller coaster of it. You know, you're having life-saving procedure in the morning and, and then you might lose a patient on the waiting list in the afternoon. And it was really ups and downs and those kind of swings that eventually, for me, after 25 years, got, you know, be so tiresome, so difficult that I would, I, I decided to move on and leave Stanford. Oh, so some days it was like you saved one and then one passed away. Or I guess like two steps forward, 1.99 steps back. That's exactly right. And, you know, sometimes it would be the same day or the same week, or sometimes the bad outcomes would cluster into, you know, a couple week period. And I think it's, you know, it's hard. I was in charge of a team of about 55 people. And, you know, you have to keep the morale of the team high so that we can move on to the next patient. And, you know, that hard, you know, because we're all, we're all human beings doing this. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to show the reader that, you know, their doctor usually cares deeply about what happens to them and, you know, that we are human and we react to things in a very human way. And I show that in the book. Sometimes I reacted to things well and sometimes not so well. And, and you know, all of this was part of just a, being a human being trying to do a pretty intense job. Yeah. When you made the decision to leave, were you, did you have a place to go? Or you, you thought, 
I don't know where I'm going. I just can't take this. You know, it was really, I had a pretty clear idea what I wanted to do. I, I, I wanted to help transplant programs perform better. I think that that's something that I had done well during the course of my career and decided that it was time for me to help several programs at a time perform better instead of just the one that I was working in. And so I became more coach and quarterback. So just to use a sports analogy, and I do this now, I coach up transplant programs to try to do better. And then they go out and help a bunch of people. And that, that feels good to me. It's, it's different than working on the front lines direct with direct patient care, but it still feels like I'm making a contribution. So I'm gratified about that. Well, what are the metrics by which you say better? Is it like a 1% lower bad outcome rate or what does better mean? It's usually, you know, higher than that. It usually, sometimes we can move the meter by 25, 30, 50%. And we also help, uh, my consulting group helps transplant programs grow. So some of them are small and don't have particularly good outcomes when we first start working with them. And then as time goes on, sometimes it takes a year or two, we can get them not only bigger, but also better. So Transplant is one of those clinical practices where usually if you do more of them, you get better at it. And, you know, we help programs grow so that they can actually perform better. You know, have you made, let's say, a checklist that allow you to score better the possibility that a, a surgery will go well? Or, you know, what about a checklist that not only does that, but let's say there's like two or three variations of the surgery, you know, based on the outcome of it, it tells you, all right, well, number two is going to have probably a better outcome than number one method. Treehouse Live Rosin Liquid Diamond Vape Pens combine the impressive taste and potency of live rosin extract with the power of liquid THC diamonds to bring you an unrivaled buzz and mouth-watering flavor profile. If you like getting lit, head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. One E, not two. When you go there, take your vape game up to new heights. Enjoy 30% off your order and get a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll when you use coupon code GENIUS. Again, that's G-E-N-I-U-S. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. Treehouse, the best that legal, delivered to your door, THC has to offer. Yeah, what we do is we actually break down the transplant procedure into small parts because I think it is, as you suggest, doing these small things and making sure you've got them down, whether it's picking the right candidate for the operation or picking the right organ or doing the right operation or the post-operative care in the ICU. What we do when we try to help a transplant program perform better is we break all of this down and first try to figure out what's going wrong. And sometimes it's just infrastructure problems. You know, they just don't have enough people to actually get the operation done, get these patients taken care of. And that's, you know, surprisingly common. And so we help convince the hospitals that they need to hire more people in order to get Oh, really? Like what? There might not be enough nurses or... Yeah. So you do an operation that normally takes a crew of four with three with someone doubling up, let's say? That's right. And, you know, it's a, the economics of how hospitals try to do most things or, you know, or to try to do them as lean as possible. And I get that. They're running a big bit. But... In transplant, that can really matter. And so we feel like 
if programs are properly staffed with the right number of physicians, enough surgeons to get things done, enough nurses to take care of the patients afterwards, do you have a dietitian and a physical therapist and all of the things that are important, then that program will perform better. And so hospitals have to be convinced of that because the biggest cost that hospitals have are the people that work there. You know, obviously the labor costs are very expensive. And But we convince them that it's a great investment for the long run because the program performs better, patients do better, and they can do more transplants out there. Well, what was the difference between the absolute best outcomes and the worst? What caused the vast difference? I think judgment, you know, issues. I think that, you know, this is a field like, you know, many others in medicine and probably many others outside of medicine where experience matters. And I think that you see at times inexperience showing and you see transplant programs that are trying to get the transplants done with with less experienced teams. And I think one of the things that we also do in my consulting business so that we can help programs is point out those inexperiences. Like, let's make sure that there's enough experience on the team so that the operations can be done safe. And I think that that's critically important because right now, which is surprising to me, we, we see less doctors and nurses interested in going into transplant, probably because it's so hard. <laughs> it's just a difficult thing to do for a living. And you're seeing uh, less and less people entering the field. If someone has to get a transplant, do they even have any choice in the center they go to? And if they do, how do they evaluate based on your experience, a good center versus a mediocre one? Well, it's a good question because I don't think patients really know, frankly, the difference a good center and a mediocre one. There are some statistics that are publicly available that folks can look at. There's a website called srtr.org that have all the program statistics, but they have limitations about what they report and is it timely, is it current, that kind of thing. So I think patients generally generally don't know if the transplant program they're going to is a good one or not so good, but they generally also go to the program that's closest to them. And sometimes that's fine and sometimes it's not. And so, you know, patients contact me as well to help them pick centers and I try to do that you know, as fairly as I can, recognizing that it's probably easiest to go to your local transplant center, one closest to you, so that your family can help take care of you and you don't have to move somewhere else. But sometimes that, that's not the best option. So what else is covered in your book? What's the important concepts you want to get across? I think that, you know, when I sat down to write the book, I wanted to do a couple things. One was to give the reader a glimpse into this world of transplant, which they may not know anything about. So, you know, those that are interested in these kind of dramatic medical stories, that's in my book. But I also wanted to humanize the doctors that do this kind of work. And in a way, since I was the one writing it, I was showing, you know, the times that I did things well, the times that I did things less well. And also, I think it, it was important because a lot of physicians and a lot of people right now are considering career changes. And toward the end of the book, I obviously made a pretty big career change. I left the front lines of medicine when I was 52 years old. And I wanted to give the idea that it's okay, you know, that it works, that you can actually do something else and have a different chapter in your life and things will be fine. 
And hearing from a lot of people that have read the book that are saying, you know, in some way help them make a transition that they were reluctant to make. And that was not why I sat down to write the book, but I do think it was, you know, an end result of having written it. Well, what kind of feedback have you gotten from readers who seems to be reading? I think there's, you know, there's obviously people that are connected to the medical field reading it in some ways, but I also have given talks and heard from people in other high-intensity fields, stockbrokers, people that work on Wall Street, a lot of those folks that contacted me. There's been a lot of airline pilots, and I've talked to pilot groups for, you know, which is a stressful job. But I think I've heard from a lot of people that work in medicine, yes, and a lot of people that are just basically in an industry where burnout's a factor. And I think my book has a component of that for them as well. So those are the folks that how do people uh, respond to the need? They had a partner, they were smokers versus not, that just blindsided them. How does that impact the person's expectation and feelings about the surgery? And does it cause them to have better or worse outcomes if they feel like it was quote unquote their fault? I don't think that the outcomes are terribly different in, among those two groups. I think, you know, the vast majority of the people we transplanted just had diseases that were bad luck. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. They just had bad luck. We did transplant people that smoked, for instance, and had emphysema. And we didn't treat those patients any differently. I mean, you know, we've, we've all made mistakes in our life with regard to just generally living it and with regard to our health. And we certainly, you know, don't make value judgments about people when we're trying to save their life. You know, I don't think it's made much of a difference one way or another, whether you're a cigarette smoker who receives a lung transplant, you have alcoholic cirrhosis, and you need a liver transplant. I don't think the team approaches that kind of patient different. I haven't seen that. What surprises do you see or inexplicable anomalies do you see in the data? A person's expectation of the surgery, if, they, if they're confident in it or if they're not confident in it, or again, other factors, like when, what unexpected or surprising things have you seen in the data? You know, I don't think that there's a way to measure that. I do think, though, there's a vast difference in how a patient approaches their own care. In other words, I've seen it both ways, right? I've seen patients that after the transplant don't take particularly good care of their transplanted organ or themselves. Those patients don't, don't do very well. But the majority of the patients, once they get that second chance at life, are very diligent about caring for the transplanted organ. And I've seen much more of that. And I've seen patients really you know, dig in work with us so that they can get the longest life possible out of the transplant, which is what we want. You know, our interests are aligned. The patients want to live longer and we want that to live longer. And so I've seen a lot more of that than I have of patients just blowing up doctor's appointments and not taking their medicines properly. That's pretty uncommon after a transplant. It happens. Well, what's typical behavior right after a transplant versus a year or two more years later? Can you even tell? Has anyone looked? Yeah. I mean, my experience is right after a transplant, there's euphoria. So you have to remember, which may be obvious, these patients are often days and weeks away from dying. So they've essentially gotten a second life. And if you've ever interacted with people that have a chance at a second life, they're pretty happy pretty euphoric. And so we see that euphoria and we share it as well. We're, we're happy. And that gradually wears off, but what sustains them 
are the relationships around them, the things that they're now able to do with their new transplant, the interactions with their family and brands, their interaction with their faith. Some of them go back to work. So a lot of them spend time outside and exercising and doing all the things that they couldn't do before. So I have a box full of, and I'll write about this in my book, pictures and cards and letters of people climbing mountains and going skiing and fishing and jumping out of airplanes and you name it. I think that's the whole point of the operation. I don't think anybody gets a transplant, you know, to go sit on the couch afterwards. Just that's not been my experience. I mean, people want to go out there and live life. Well, how long do people live after a lung transplant? What's the range? You know, I think, I think it varies a lot. I, I certainly had patients that are lived 25 years. After a lung transplant, I've had patients that have lived 15 and 10 and 5 and had patients, unfortunately, that have lived less than a week. Fortunately, about 90%, at least the first year post-transplant. So the biggest risk in all of it is the first year. I think that about 9 and 10 get to the first year when the biggest risk is in place. And I think that what happens after that is widely variable. You know, it's just impossible really to even generalize. Well, why is the first year so critical? Why? I think that there's first the operation that's associated with risk. That's in the first year. That's in the first day. And then there's the immunosuppression, which is at its highest during the first year. Therefore, your chance of having infection as a result of having a suppressed immune system is highest during that first year. There's rejection that's more common in the first year than at any other time. And so that first year is critical. That's why we say you know, that we see patients so frequently during the first year and the air is more intense, if that makes sense. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of things, adjusting medicine, seeing the patients frequently, bi taking biopsies to make sure they're not rejecting. There's a lot of activity during that first year. What's the criteria by which someone, you know, donates a lung? You know, like, if, am I lucky if I get an athlete's heart or sorry, lung versus like something just hanging on there, but they, they donated their lung? Like what, what kind of um, yeah. quality starting material do you see? Well, by and large, the younger organs, that is organs of all types, heart, lung, kidney, liver, that come from younger people are better, quote unquote. I mean, that just makes sense, right? I mean, people that are younger are usually healthy. And unfortunately, people that donate are often younger because these are accidents. You know, there are young people out there doing things and they get in accidents and they hurt themselves and have to, you know, have to go on life support and become brain dead and become organ donors. So, you know, we always think that the highest quality organs are, are the ones for the youngest people, whether or not they're an athlete or not. And, you know, that's been true since I got involved. What does the matching process look like? How do you match someone to uh, the donor when the name comes up to the top of the list where it's like first come, first serve, whatever we got, you get? It kind of depends by organ, but most of it is by size and lung transplant. You know, in other words, you know, we're looking at blood group matching. So you have to stay in the same blood group and size matching. You know, we have five foot two females on our waiting list. We can't put a six foot four man's lung into a five foot two woman. Like a, like a super long. Yeah, it's too big. <laughs> it just won't fit. And so we're basically looking to size match people. We don't have to do it identically, but we have to do it within some range so that, you know, so that the organs fit. interesting. When someone's, let's say, 5'2 versus like 6'2, what's bigger about them? They're obviously quite a bit taller, but do all their organs scale linearly with height? Not quite linearly, but the lung's bigger, you know, in a 6'2 man than it is in a 5'2 woman. 
And so, in fact, some of the diseases that we transplant, the lung disease actually shrinks the size of the lung. So it's not only a five foot two woman's lung who has normal lungs, it's five foot two woman who has diseased lungs and therefore her lungs shrink. Sometimes they're half the size that they should be. So it even makes it worse. So it's often hard to find an appropriate organ for somebody like that because of the size discrepancy, the donor on the one hand and the recipient on the other. Hmm, interesting. So so it's not linear. So what, the, the organs will get bigger, but they'll get bigger more slowly, even though the person's getting taller and bigger? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, there's a limit to it. You know, fortunately, the lungs don't just grow and grow and grow, but they they take up a, a disproportionate amount of the chest relative to a smaller person. Yeah. Do they seem to grow right along with the age of the person? Like, um, you know, let's say guys start just growing at yeah. 17, 8, let's say 18. If you get a, an 18-year-old of a certain height and build versus, let's say, a 25-year-old, same height and build, will the lung size be the same? Do they continue growing? Do they lag? Do they leave? Does anyone know? We don't really know the answer to that question. You know, I think once you get to be full size, let's just say at 18, pretty common for the lung size not to change after that. So I don't think we see much change after 18. Are double lung transplants common or is it usually single lung? And like what conditions require which? Yeah, when I first started out in the field in the early 90s, it was about 50% single lungs, 50% double lung. Now it's more like 85% double lungs and 15% single lung. We've, as a field, have decided that double lungs are probably a better option operation that give people more lung, basically, and they probably have a better functional outcome. So we're seeing quite a bit more double lung trends than when I started in the field back in the early. So what's the trade-off between single versus double lung? It's a longer operation, one. And two, you know, back in the day when we were doing single lung transplants, we could transplant two people from one donor. So in other words, we could take two single lungs out of one donor and put them into two different people. We did that all the time. We used to call it twinning. We would twin people. So now that's less common than it used to be. We would just take that double lung out of an organ donor and put it in single recipient. And the operation, you know, would take six to eight hours, a bit longer than the single lung. Are the outcomes different for single versus double? A little bit better for double lung transplant in terms of survival, certainly better functional outcome. You get more healthy lung tissue, so a little bit better, I would say. Okay. Very interesting. So what what's the best way for people to learn about what you're doing and what you've done? I guess the book is the best place to start. Yeah. The website that I have is davidweilmd.com. So it's david, W-E-I-L-L-M-D.com. It has access to my book, certainly, but also I write a lot of op-eds for national publications and do that pretty regularly. So if folks are interested in what I'm thinking at any one time, the website's a good place to see not only that, but also the consulting work that I do. It's all on the website. But yeah, the book is a story of my professional career in transplantation, you know, the emotional ups and downs of doing that kind of work. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and answering all these questions. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Remember, before you go, you've got to check out treehouse.com. That's T-R-E, only one E, T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. They offer an array of premium legal THC products, including gummies, vapes, pre-rolls, and more. And they're all delivered right to your doorstep. With unique blends of carefully selected cannabinoids, all rigorously lab-tested to ensure quality and consistency, Treehouse products give you the buzz you simply can't get anywhere else. Head over to Treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. Remember, there's one E, not two.
and enjoy 30% off your order and get Acapulco Gold HHC pre-rolls when you use the coupon code GENIUS at checkout. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.